Chapters twenty nine through thirty one of the Right Away by Gilbert Parker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter twenty nine. The Wild Ride. There had been a fierce thunderstorm in the valley of the Chaudiere. It had come suddenly from the east, had shrieked over the village, leveling fences, carrying away small bridges, and ending in a pelting hail which whitened the ground with pebbles of ice. It had swept up to Vadrome Mountain and had marched furiously through the forest, carrying down hundreds of trees, drowning the roars of wild animals and the crying and fluttering of birds. One hour of ravage and rage, and then spent and bodiless, the storm crept down the other side of the mountain and into the next parish, whither the affrightened quack doctor had betaken himself. After a perfect calm, a shining sun, and a sweet smell over all the land which had thirstily drunk the battering showers. In the house on Vadrome Mountain the tailor of Chaudier had watched the storm with sympathetic interest. It was in accord with his own feelings. He had had a hard fight for months past, and had gone down in the storm of his emotions one night when a song called Champagne Charlie had had a weird and thrilling antiphonal. There had been a subsequent debacle for himself, and then a revelation concerning Joe Portugais. Ensued hours and days wherein he had fought a desperate fight with the present, with himself and the reaction from his dangerous debauch. The battle for his life had been fought for him by this gloomy woodsman who henceforth represented his past, was bound to him by a measureless gratitude, almost a sacrament, of the damned. Of himself, he had played no conscious part in it till the worst was over. On the one side was the curé, patient, gentle, friendly, never pushing forward the faith which the good man dreamed should give him refuge and peace. On the other side was the murderer, who typified unrest, secretiveness, an awful isolation, and a remorse which had never been put into words or acts of restitution. For six days the tailor shop and the life at Chaudier had been things almost apart from his consciousness. Ever-recurring memories of Rosalie Evanturel were driven from his mind with a painful persistence. In the shadows where his nature dwelt now he would not allow her good innocence and truth to enter. His self-reproach was the more poignant because it was silent. Watching the tempest-swept valley, the tortured forest, where wildlife was in panic, there came upon him the old impulse to put his thoughts into words, and so be rid of them as he was wont to say in other days. Taking from his pocket some slips of paper, he laid them on the table before him. Three or four times he leaned over the paper to write, but the noise of the storm again and again drew his look to the window. The tempest ceased almost as suddenly as it had come, and, as the first sunlight broke through the flying clouds, he mechanically lifted a sheet of the paper and held it up to the light. It brought to his eyes the large watermark, Kathleen. A somber look passed over his face, he shifted in his chair, then bent over the paper and began to write. Words flowed from his pen. The lines of his face relaxed, his eyes lightened, he was lost in a dream. He thought of the present and wrote, Wave walls to seaward, storm clouds to leeward. Beaten and blown by the winds of the west, sail we encumbered past isles unnumbered, but never to greet the green island of rest. 
he thought of father loisel he had seen the good man's lips tremble at some materialistic words he had once used in their many talks and he wrote lips that now tremble do you dissemble when you deny that the human is best love the evangel finds the archangel is it a truth when this may be a jest star drifts that glimmer dimmer and dimmer what do ye know of my weal or my woe was i born under the sun or the thunder where do i come from and where do i go rest shall it ever come is endeavour but a vain twining and twisting of cords is faith but treason reason unreason but a mechanical weaving of words he thought of louis trudel in his grave and his own questioning show me a sign from heaven taylor man and he wrote what is the token ever unbroken swept down the spaces of querulous years weeping or singing that the beginning of all things is with us and sees us and hears he made an involuntary motion of his hand to his breast where old louis trudel had set a sign so long as he lived it must be there to read a shining smooth scar of excoriation a sacred sign of the faith he had never been able to accept of which he had never indeed been able to think so distant had been his soul until against his will his heart had answered to the revealing call in a woman's eyes he felt her fingers touch his breast as they did that night the iron seared him and out of this first intimacy of his soul he wrote what is the token bruised and broken bend i my life to a blossoming rod shall then the worst things come to the first things finding the best of all last of all god like the cry of his aphrodite written that last afternoon of the old life this plaint ended with the same restless unceasing question but there was a difference there was no longer the material distant note of a pagan mind there was the intimate spiritual note of a mind finding a foothold on the submerged causeway of life and time as he folded up the paper to put it into his pocket joe portugais entered the room he threw in a corner the wet bag which had protected his shoulders from the rain hung his hat on a peg of the chimney-piece nodded to charlie and put a kettle on the little fire a big storm monsieur joe said presently as he put some tea into a pot i have never seen a great storm in the forest before answered charlie and came nearer to the window through which the bright sun streamed it always does me good said joe every bird and beast is awake and afraid and trying to hide and the trees fall and the roar of it like the roar of the chasquillerie on the kimash river the kimash river where is it joe shrugged his shoulders who knows is it a legend then it is a river and the chasquillerie that is true monsieur no matter what anyone thinks i know i have seen i have seen with my own eyes joe was excited now i am listening he took a cup of tea from portugais and drank eagerly the camache river monsieur that is the river in the air on it is the chasquillerie you sell your soul to the devil you ask him to help you you deny god you get into a canoe and call on the devil you are lifted up canoe and all and you rush on down rapids over falls on the camache river in the air the devil stands behind you and shouts and you sing bois le bon bois 
Vosholiva. On and on you go, faster and faster, and you forget the world, and you forget yourself, and the devil is with you in the air, in the Chasse Galerie, on the Kimash River. Joe, said Charlie Steele, do you honestly think there's a river like that? Monsieur, I know it. I saw Ignace Latour, who robbed a priest and got drunk on the communion wine. I saw him with the devil in the black canoe at the Saugony. I could see Ignace. I could see the devil. I could see the Kamash River. I shall ride myself some day. Ride where? What does it matter where? Why should you ride? Because you ride fast with the devil. What is the good of riding fast? In the rush a man forgets. What does he forget, my friend? There was a pause in which a man with a load of crime upon his soul dwelt upon the words, my friend, coming from the lips of one who knew the fullness of his iniquity. Then he answered. In the noise he forgot that a voice is calling in his ear. You did it. He forgot what he see in his dreams. He forgot the hand that touched him on the arm when he walked in the woods alone, or lie down to sleep at night, no one near. He forgot that some one wait, wait, wait till he has suffered long enough, or till one day he think he is happy again, and the thing he did is far off like a dream, to drag him out to the death he did not die. He forget that he is alone, all alone in the world, for ever and ever and ever. He suddenly sank upon the floor beside Charlie, and a groan burst from his lips. To have no friend, ah, it is so awful, he said, never to see a face that look into yours, and know how bad are you, and doesn't mind. For five years I have lived like that. I cannot let anyone be my friend because I was that. They seem to know, everything, everybody, what I am. The little children, when I pass them, run away to hide. I have wake in the night and cry out in fear. It is so lonely. I have hear voices round me in the woods, and I run and run and run from them, and not leave them behind. Three times I go to the jails in Quebec to see the prisoners behind the bars, and watch the pains on their faces to understand what I escape. Five times have I go to the courts to listen to murderers tried, and watch them when the jury says, Guilty, and the judge send them to death, that I might know. Twice have I gone to see murderers hung. Once I was helper to the hangman, that I might hear and know what the man said, what he felt. When the arms were bound, I felt the straps on my own. When the cap come down, I gasp for breath. When the bolt is shot, I feel the wrench and the choke, and shudder go through myself, feel the world jerk out in the dark. When my body is bundled in the pit, I see myself lie still under the quick lime with the red mark round my throat. Charlie touched him on the shoulder. Joe, poor Joe, my friend, he said. Joe raised his eyes, red with an unnatural fire, deep with gratitude. As I sit at my dinner, with the sun shining and the woods green and glad, and all the world gay, I have seen what happened all over again. I have seen his strong hands, his bad face laugh at my words. I have seen him raise his riding-whip and cut me across the head. I have seen him stagger and fall from the blows I gave him with the knife, the knife which never was found. Why, I not know, for I throw it on the ground beside him. There, as I sit in the open day, 
a thousand times i have seen him shiver and fall staring staring at me as if he see a dreadful thing then i stand up again and strike at him at his ghost as i did that day in the woods again i see him lie in his blood straight and white so large so handsome so still i have shed tears but what are tears blind with tears i have called out for the devils of hell to take me with them i have called on god to give me death i have prayed and i have cursed twice i have travelled to the grave where he lies i have knelt there and have begged him to tell the truth to god and say that he torture me till i kill him i have begged him to forgive me and to haunt me no more with his bad face but never 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 have i one quiet hour until you come monsieur nor any joy in my heart till i tell you the black truth monsieur monsieur he buried his face between charlie's feet and held them with his hands charlie laid a hand on the shaggy head as though it were that of a child be still be still joe he said gently since that night of st jean baptiste's festival no word of the past of the time when charlie turned aside the revenge of justice from a man called joseph nadeau had been spoken between them out of the delirium of his drunken trance had come charlie's recognition of the man he knew now as joe portugais but the recognition had been sent again into the obscurity whence it came and had not been mentioned since to outward seeming they had gone on as before as charlie saw the knotted brows the staring eyes the clinched hands the figure of the woodsman rigid in its agony of remorse he said to himself what right had i to save this man's life to have paid for his crime would have been easier for him i knew he was guilty perhaps it was my duty to see that every condition to the last shade of the law was satisfied but was it justice to the poor devil himself there he sits with a load on him that weighs him down every hour of his life i called him back i gave him life but i gave him memory and remorse and the ghosts that haunt him the voice in his ear the touch on his arm the someone that is waiting 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 that is what i did and that is what the brother of the cure did for me he drew me back he knew i was a drunkard but he drew me back i might have been a murderer like portugais the world says i was a thief and a thief i am until i prove to the world i am innocent and wreck three lives how much of joe's guilt is guilt how much remorse should a man suffer to pay the debt of a life if the law is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth how much hourly remorse and torture such as joe's should balance the eye or the tooth or the life i wonder now he leaned over and helping joe to his feet gently forced him down upon a bench near all right joe my friend he said i understand we'll drink the gall together they sat and looked at each other in silence at length charlie leaned over and touched joe on the shoulder why did you want to save yourself he said at that instant there was a knock at the door and a voice said monsieur monsieur joe sprang to his feet with a sharp exclamation then went heavily to the door and threw it open End of chapter twenty nine chapter thirty rosalie warns charlie 
Charlie's eyes met Rosalie's with a look the girl had never seen in them before. It gave a glow to his haggard face. Rosalie turned to Joe and greeted him with a friendlier manner than was her wont towards him. The nearer she was to Charlie, the farther away from him to her mind was Portugais, and she became magnanimous. Joe nodded awkwardly and left the room. Looking after the departing figure, Rosalie said, "'I know he has been good to you, but—but do you trust him, monsieur?' "'Does not everybody in Chaudiere trust him?' "'There is one who does not, though perhaps that's of no consequence.' why do you not trust him i don't know i never knew him to do a bad thing i never heard of a bad thing he has done and he has been good to you she paused flushing as she felt the significance of her words and continued yet there it is i cannot tell what i feel something it is not reasonable to go upon one's feelings but there it is and so i do not trust him it is the way he lives here in these lonely woods the mystery around him. A change passed over her. With the first glow of meeting the object of her visit had receded, though since her last interview with the Seigneur she had not rested a moment in her anxiety to warn him of his danger. "'Oh, no,' she said, lifting her eyes frankly to his. "'Oh, no, monsieur, it is not that. There is mystery about you.' She felt her heart beating hard. It almost choked her, but she kept on bravely. People say strange and bad things about you. No one knows. She trembled under the painful inquiry of his eyes. Then she gained courage and went on, for she must make it clear she trusted him, that she took him at his word before she told him of the peril before him. No one knows where you came from, and it is nobody's business. Some people do not believe in you, but I believe in you. I should believe in you if everyone doubted for there is no feeling in me that says he has done some wicked thing that stands between us it isn't the same as with Cordegay. you see naturally it could not be the same she seemed not to realize that she was telling more of her own heart than she had ever told it was a revelation having its origin in an honesty which impelled a pure outspokenness to himself reserve of course there had been elsewhere for did not she hold a secret with him had she not hidden things, equivocated elsewhere? Yet it had been at his wish, to protect the name of a dead man, for the repose of whose soul masses were now said, with expensive candles burning. For this she had no repentance, she was without logic where this man's good was at stake. Charlie had before him a problem, which he now knew he could never evade in the future. He could solve it by none of the old intellectual means, but by the use of new faculties, slowly emerging from the unexplored fastness of his nature. "'Why should you believe in me?' he asked, forcing himself to smile, yet acutely alive to the fact that a crisis was impending. "'You, like all down there in Chaudier, know nothing of my past, are not sure I haven't been a hundred times worse than you think poor Joe there. I may have been anything. You may be harboring a man the law is tracking down.' In all that befell Rosalie Evanturel thereafter, never could come such another great resolute moment. There was nothing to support her in the crisis but her own faith. It needed high courage to tell this man who had first given her dreams, then imagination, hope, and the beauty of doing for another's well-being rather than for her own. 
to tell this man that he was a suspected criminal? Would he hate her? Would his kindness turn to anger? Would he despise her for even having dared to name the suspicion which was bringing hither an austere abbey and officers of the law? We are harboring a man the law is tracking down, she said with an infinite appeal in her eyes. He did not quite understand. He thought that perhaps she meant Joe, and he glanced towards the door. But she kept her eyes on him, and they told him that she meant himself. He chilled as though ether were being poured through his veins. Did the world know then that Charlie Steele was alive? Was the law sending its officers to seize the embezzler, the ruffian who had robbed widow and orphan? If it were so, to go back to the world whence he came, with the injury he must do to others, and the punishment also that he must suffer, if he did not tell the truth about Billy, and Chaudiere, which in spite of all of it was beginning to have a real belief in him, where was his contempt for the world now? and Rosalie, who trusted him, this new element rapidly grew dominant in his thoughts to be the common criminal in her eyes? His paleness gave way to a flush as like her own as could be. "'You mean me?' he asked quietly. She had thought that his flush meant anger, and she was surprised at the quiet tone. She nodded assent. "'For what crime?' he asked. "'For stealing.' His heart seemed to stand still. Then it had come in spite of all it had come. Here was his resurrection, and the old life to face. "'What did I steal?' he asked with dull apathy. "'The gold vessels from the Catholic Cathedral of Quebec after—after after trying to blow up Government House with gunpowder.' His despair passed. His face suddenly lighted. He smiled. It was so absurd. "'Really?' he said. "'When was the place blown up?' Two days before you came here last year.' It was not blown up. An attempt was made. Ah, I did not know. Why was the attempt made to blow it up? Some Frenchman's hatred of the English, they say. But I am not French. They do not know. You speak French as perfectly as English. Ah, monsieur, monsieur, I believe you are whatever you say. Pain and appeal rang from her lips. I am only an honest tailor, he answered gently. He ruled his face to calmness, for he read the agony in the girl's face, and, troubled as he was, he wished to show her that he had no fear. "'It is for what you were they will arrest you,' she said helplessly, and as though he needed to have all made clear to him. "'Oh, Monsieur,' she continued in a broken voice, "'it would shame me so to have you made a prisoner in Chaudier, before all these silly people who turn with the wind. I shall not lift my head, but yes, I should lift my head,' she added hurriedly. I should tell them all, they lied, every one, the idiots, the Signor. Well, what of the Signor, Rosalie? Her own name on his lips. The sound of it dimmed her eyes. Monsieur Rossignol does not know you. He neither believes nor disbelieves. He said to me that if you wanted consideration to command him, for in Chaudier he had heard nothing but good of you. If you stayed, he would see that you had justice, not persecution. I saw him two hours ago. She said the last word shyly, for she was thinking why the Seigneur had spoken as he did, that he had taken her opinion of Mansour as his guide, and she had not scrupled to impress him with her views. The Seigneur was in danger of becoming prejudiced by his sentiments. A wave of feeling passed over Charlie, a rushing wave of sympathy for this simple girl, who, out of a blind confidence, 
risked so much for him. Risk there certainly was, if she, if she cared for him. It was cruelty not to reassure her. Touching his breast, he said gravely, By this sign here, I am not guilty of the crime for which they come to seek me, Rosalie, nor of any other crime for which the law might punish me, dear noble friend. He did so little to get such rich return. Her eyes leaped up to brighter degrees of light. Her face shone with a joy it had never reflected before. Her blood rushed to her fingertips. She abruptly sat down in a chair and buried her face in her hands, trembling. Then, lifting her head slowly, after a moment she spoke in a tone that told him her faith, her gratitude, not for reassurance but for confidence, which is as water in a thirsty land to a woman. "'Oh, Monsieur, I thank you. I thank you from the depths of my heart. And my heart is deep indeed, very, very deep. I cannot find what lies lowest in it. I thank you because you trust me, because you make it so easy to—to to be your friend, to say, I know, when anyone might doubt you. One has no right to speak for another till—till till the other has given confidence, has said, you may. Ah, Monsieur, I am so happy. In her very abandonment of heart she clasped her hands and came a step nearer to him, but abruptly stopped still, for realizing her action, timidity and embarrassment rushed upon her. Charlie understood, and again his impulse was to say what was in his heart and dare all. But resolution possessed him, and he said quickly, "'Once, Rosalie, you saved me, from death perhaps. Once your hands helped my pain, here.' He touched his breast. "'Your words now and what you do, they still help me, here, but in a different way.' The trouble is in my heart, Rosalie. You are glad of my confidence? Well, I will give you more. I cannot go back to my old life. To do so would injure others, some who have never injured me, and some who have. That is why I do not wish to be taken to Quebec now on a false charge. That is all I can say. Is it enough? She was about to answer, but Joe Portugais entered, exclaiming, Monsieur, he cried, men are coming with the seigneur and curé. Charlie nodded at Joe, then turned to Rosalie. You need not be seen if you go out by the back way, mademoiselle. He held aside the bearskin curtain of the door that led into the next room. There was a frightened look on her face. Do not fear for me, he continued. It will come right, somehow. You have done more for me than anyone has ever done or ever will do. I will remember till the last moment of my life. Good-bye. He laid a hand on her shoulder and gently pushed her from the room. God protect you. The Blessed Virgin speak for you. I will pray for you, she whispered. End of chapter 30 Chapter 31 Charlie Stands at Bay Charlie turned quickly to the woodsman. Listen, he said, and he told Joe how things stood. "'You will not hide, monsieur?' "'There is time,' Joe asked. "'I will not hide, Joe. What will you do?' "'I'll decide when they come.' There was silence for a moment, then the sound of voices on the hillside. Charlie's soul rose up in revolt against the danger that faced him, not against personal evil, but the danger of being dragged back again into the life he had come from, with all that it involved, the futility of this charge against him.' 
to be the victim of an error to go to the bar of justice with the hand of injustice on his arm all at once the love of this new life welled up in him as a spring of water overflows its bounds a voice kept ringing in his ears i will pray for you subconsciously his mind kept saying rosalie 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 there was nothing now that he would not do to avert his being taken away upon this ridiculous charge mistaken identity to prove that he must at once prove himself who he was whence he came tell the cure and make it a point of honour for his secret to be kept but once told the new life would no longer stand by itself as the new life cut off from all contact with the past its success its possibility must lie in its absolute separateness with obscurity behind as though he had come out of nothing into this very room on that winter morning when memory returned it was clear that he must somehow evade the issue he glanced at joe whose eyes strained and painful were fixed upon the door here was a man who suffered for his sake he took a step forward as though with sudden resolve but there came a knocking and pausing he motioned joe to open the door then turning to a shelf he took something from it hastily and kept it in his hand joe roused himself with an effort and opened to the knocking three people entered the seigneur the cure and the abbe rossignol an ascetic severe man with a face of intolerance and inflexibility two constables in plain clothes followed one stolid one alert one english and one french both with grim satisfaction in their faces the successful exercise of his trade is pleasant to every craftsman when they entered charlie was standing with his back to the fireplace his eyeglass adjusted one hand stroking his beard the other behind his back the cure came forward and shook hands in an eager friendly way my dear monsieur said he i hope that you are better i am quite well thank you monsieur le cure answered charlie i shall get back to work on monday i hope yes yes that is good responded the cure and seemed confused he turned uneasily to the seigneur you have come to see my friend portugais charlie remarked slowly almost apologetically i will take my leave he made a step forward the two constables did the same and would have laid their hands upon his shoulder but that the seigneur said tartly stand off jack and boxes the two stood aside and looked covertly at the seigneur whose temper seemed unusually irascible charlie's face showed no surprise but he looked inquiringly at the cure if they wish to be measured for uniforms or manners i will see them at my shop he said the seigneur chuckled charlie stepped again towards the door the two constables stood before it again he turned inquiringly this time towards the cure the cure did not speak it is you we wish to see taylor said the abbe rodsignol soft-tongued irony leaped to charlie's lips have i then the honour of including monsieur among my new customers i cannot recall monsieur's figure i think i should not have forgotten it it was now the old charlie steele with the new body the new spirit but with the old skilful mind aggravatingly polite non intime the intolerant face of this father of souls irritated him I never forget a figure which has idiosyncrasy, he added, with a bland eye wandering over the priest's gaunt form. It was his old way to strike first and heal after, 
a kick and a lick, as old Paddy Weir, whom he once saved from prison, said of him. It was like bygone years of another life to appear in defense when the law was tightening round the victim. The secret spring had been touched, the ancient machinery of his mind was working almost automatically. The illusion was considerable, for the Signor had taken the only armchair in the room, a little apart as it were, filling the place of judge. The priest brother, cold and inveterate, was like the attorney for the crown. The curé was the clerk of the court, who could only echo the decisions of the judge. The constables were the machinery of the law, and Joe Portugais was the unwilling witness, whose evidence would be the crux of the case. The prisoner, he himself, was prisoner, and prisoner's counsel. A good struggle was forward. He had enraged the abbey as much as he had delighted the abbey's brother, for nothing gave the Signor such pleasure as the discomfiture of the abbey Rossignol, chaplain and ordinary to the archbishop of Quebec. The genial, sympathetic nature of the Signor could not even be patient with the excessive piety of the churchman, who, in rigid righteousness, had thrashed him cruelly as a boy. At Charlie's words upon the abbey's figure, gaunt and precise as a swaddled ramrod, he pulled his nose with a grunt of satisfaction. The curé, the peacemaker, intervened. The tailor's meaning was sufficiently clear. If they had come to see him personally, then it was natural for him to wish to know the names and stations of his guests and their business. The Signor was aware that the tailor did know, and he enjoyed the sang-froid with which he was meeting the situation. "'Monsieur,' said the curate in a mollifying voice, "'I have ventured to bring the Signor of Chaudier.' The Signor stood up and bowed gravely. "'And his brother, the Abbe Rossignol, who would speak with you on private business.' He ignored the presence of the constables. Charlie bowed to the Signor and the Abbe, then turned inquiringly towards the two constables. "'Friends of my brother the Abbe,' said the Seigneur maliciously. "'Their names, Monsieur?' asked Charlie. "'They have numbers,' answered the Seigneur whimsically, to the curé's pain, for levity seemed improper at such a time. "'Numbers of names are legally suspicious. Numbers for names are suspiciously legal,' rejoined Charlie. "'You have pierced the disguise of discourtesy,' said the Seigneur, and on the instant he made up his mind that whatever the tailor might have been, he was deserving of respect. "'You have private business with me, Monsieur?' asked Charlie of the Abbey. The Abbey shook his head. "'The business is not private in one sense. These men have come to charge you with having broken into the cathedral at Quebec and stolen the golden vessels of the altar, also with having tried to blow up the governor's residence.' One of the constables handed Charlie the warrant. He looked at it with a curious smile. It was so natural, yet so unnatural, to be thus in touch with the habits of far-off times. "'On what information is this warrant issued?' he asked. "'That is for the law to show in due course,' said the priest. "'Pardon me, it is for the law to show now. I have a right to know.' The constables shifted from one foot to the other, looked at each other meaningly, and instinctively felt their weapons. "'I believe,' said the Signor evenly, "'that,' the Abbey interrupted, he can have information at his trial. "'Excuse me, but the warrant has my endorsement,' said the Seigneur, "'and, as the justice most concerned, I shall give proper information to the gentleman under suspicion.' He waved a hand at the Abbey, as at a fractious child, and turned courteously to Charlie. "'Monsieur,' he said, "'on the 10th of August last the cathedral at Quebec was broken into, 
and the gold altar vessels were stolen. You are suspected. The same day an attempt was made to blow up the governor's residence. You are suspected. On what ground, monsieur? You appeared in this vicinity three days afterwards with an injury to your head. Now the incendiary received a severe blow on the head from a servant of the governor. You see the connection, monsieur? Where is the servant of the governor, monsieur? Dead, unfortunately. He told the story so often to so much hospitality that he lost his footing on Mountain Street steps. You remember Mountain Street steps, possibly, monsieur? And cracked his head on the last stone. There was silence for a moment. If the thing had not been so serious, Charlie must have laughed outright. If he but disclosed his identity, how easy to dispose of this silly charge. He did not reply at once, but looked calmly at the abbey. In the pause the Seigneur added, I forgot to add that the man had a brown beard. You have a brown beard, monsieur. I had not when I arrived here. Joe Portugais spoke. It is true, monsieur, and what is more, I know a newly shaved face when I see it. The monsieur's was tanned with the sun. It is foolish that. This is not the place for evidence, said the abbe sharply. Excuse me, abbe, said his brother. If monsieur wishes to have a preliminary trial here, he may. He is in my seigneury. He is a tenant of the church here. It is a grave offence that an infidel, dropping down here from who knows where, that an acknowledged infidel should be a tenant of the church. The devil is a tenant of the Almighty, if creation is the Almighty's, said Charlie. Satan is a prisoner, snapped the abbe. With large domains for exercise, retorted Charlie, and in successful opposition to the church. If it is true that the man you charge is an infidel, how does that warrant suspicion? Other thefts, answered the abbe. A sacred iron cross was stolen from the door of the church of Chaudiere. I have no doubt that the thief of the gold vessels of the cathedral was the thief of the iron cross. It is not true, sullenly broke in Joe Portugais. What proof have you? said the seigneur. Charlie waved a deprecating hand towards Joe. I shall not call Portugais as evidence, he said. You are conducting your own case? asked the seigneur with a grim smile. It is dangerous, I believe. I will take my chances, answered Charlie. Will you tell me what object the criminal could have in stealing the gold vessels from the cathedral? he added, turning to the abbey. They were gold. And for taking the cross from the door of the church in Chaudiere? It was sacred, and he was an infidel and hated it. I do not see the logic of the argument. He stole the vessels because they were valuable, and the iron cross because he was an infidel. Now how do you know that the suspected criminal was an infidel, monsieur? It is well known. Has he ever said so? He does not deny it. If you were charged with being an opium-eater, does it follow that you are one because you do not deny it? There was a man who was said to blaspheme, to have all the crafts and assaults of the devil. Was it his duty to deny it? Suppose you were accused of being a highwayman. Would you be less a highwayman if you denied it? Or would you be less guilty if you denied it? That is beside the case, said the priest with acerbity. Faith, I think it is the case itself, said the seigneur with a satisfied pull of his nose. But do you seriously suggest that only infidels rob churches? Charlie persisted. I am not here to be cross-examined answered the abbe harshly. You are charged with robbing the cathedral and trying to blow up the governor's residence. Arrest him, he added, turning to the constables. Stand where you are, men, 
sharply threatened the seigneur. "'There are no lettres de cachet nowadays, Francois,' he added tartly to his brother. "'If it is the exclusive temptation of an infidel to rob a church, has infidelity also an inherent penchant for arson? Is it a patent? Why did the infidel blow up the governor's residence?' continued Charlie. "'He did not blow it up. He only tried,' interposed the curate softly. "'I was not aware,' said Charlie. "'Well, did the man who stole the patents from the altar—' "'They were chalices,' again interrupted the curé, with a faint smile. "'Ah, I was not aware,' again rejoined Charlie. "'I repeat, what reason had the person who stole the chalices to try to blow up the governor's residence? Is it a sign of infidelity, or—' "'You can answer for that yourself,' angrily interposed the abbey. The strain was telling on his nerves. "'It is fair to give reasons for the suspicion,' urged the seigneur acidly. "'As I said before, Francois, this is not the fifteenth century.' "'He hated the English government,' said the abbey. "'I do not understand,' responded Charlie. "'Am I then to suppose that the alleged criminal was a Frenchman as well as an infidel?' There was silence, and Charlie continued. "'It is an unusual thing for a French abbey to be so concerned for the safety of an English Protestant's life and housing. The governor is a Protestant, eh? That is indeed a zeal almost Christian, or millennial.' The abbey turned to the seigneur. "'Are you going to interfere longer with the process of the law?' "'I think Monsieur has not quite finished his argument,' said the seigneur with a twist of the mouth. "'If the man was a Frenchman, why do you suspect the tailor of Chaudier?' asked Charlie softly. "'Of course I understand the reason behind all. You have heard that the tailor is an infidel. You have protested to the good curé here, and the curé is a man who has a sense of justice, and will not drive a poor man from his parish by Christian persecution, without cause. Since certain dates coincide in Impulse's urge, you suspect the tailor. Again, according to your mind, a man who steals holy vessels must needs be an infidel. Therefore a tailor in Chaudier, suspected of being an infidel, stole the holy chalices. It might seem a fair case for a grand jury of clericals, but it breaks down in certain places. Your criminal is a Frenchman. The tailor of Chaudier is an Englishman. The abbey's face was contracted with stubborn annoyance, though he held his tongue from violence. "'Do you deny that you are French?' he asked tartly. I could almost endure the suspicion because of the compliment to my command of your charming language. Prove that you are an Englishman. No one knows where you came from. No one knows what you are. You are a fair subject for suspicion, apart from the evidence shown, said the abbey, trying now to be as polite as the tailor. This is a free country. So long as the law is obeyed, one can go where one wills without question, I take it. There is a law of vagrancy. I am a householder, a tenant of the church, not a vagrant. Monsieur, you can have your choice of proving these things here or in Quebec, said the abbe, with angry impatience again. I may not be compelled to prove anything. It is the privilege of the law to prove the crime against me. You are a very remarkable tailor, said the abbe sarcastically. I have not had the honor of making you even a cassock, I think. Monsieur le curé, I believe, approves of those I make for him. He has a good figure, however. You refuse to identify yourself? asked the abbe with asperity. I am not aware that you possess any right to ask me to do so. 
the abbey's thin lips clipped to like shears. He turned again towards the officers. It would relieve the situation, interposed the Seigneur, if Monsieur could find it possible to grant the abbey's demand. Charlie bowed to the Seigneur. I do not know why I should be taken for a Frenchman or an infidel. I speak French well, I presume, but I spoke it from the cradle. I speak English with equally good accent, he added, with a glimmer of a smile, for there was a kind of exhilaration in the little contest even with so much at stake. This miserable, silly charge had that behind it which might open up a grave, make its dead to walk, fright folk from their senses, and destroy their peace forever. Yet he was cool and thinking clearly. He measured up the abbey in his mind, analyzed him, found the vulnerable spot in his nature, the avenue to the one place lighted by a lamp of humanity. He leaned a hand upon the ledge of the chimney where he stood, and said in a low voice, Monsieur l'Abbe, it is sometimes the misfortune of just men to be terribly unjust. For conscience' sake is another name for prejudice. For those antipathies which natural to us are at the same time trapdoors for our intentions. You, Monsieur, have a radical antipathy to those men who are unable to see or to feel what you were privileged to see and feel from the time of your birth. You know that you are right. Do you think that those who do not see as you do are wicked because they were not given what you were given? If you are right, may they, poor folk, not be the victims of their blindness of heart, of the darkness born with them, or of the evils that overtake them? For conscience' sake you would crush out evil. To you an infidel, so-called, is an evildoer, a peril to the peace of God. You drive him out from among the faithful. You heard that a tailor of Chaudier was an infidel. You did not prove him one, but you, for conscience' sake, are trying to remove him by fixing on him a crime of which he may, with slight show of reason, be suspected. But I ask you, would you have taken the same deep interest in setting the law upon this suspected man, did you not believe him to be an infidel? He paused. The abbey made no reply. The curé was bending forward eagerly. The seigneur sat with his hands over the top of his cane, his chin on his hands, never taking his eyes from him save to glance once or twice at his brother. Joe Portugay was crouched on the bench, watching. "'I do not know what makes an infidel,' Charlie went on. "'Is it an honest mind, decent life, an austerity of living as great as that of any priest, a neighborliness that gives and takes in fairness?' "'No, no, no,' interposed the curé eagerly. "'So you have lived here, Monsieur. I can vouch for that. Charity and a good heart have gone with you always.' Do you mean that a man is an infidel because he cannot say, as Louis Trudel said to me, Do you believe in God? And replies, as I replied, God knows? Is that infidelity? If God is God, he alone knows when the mind or the tongue can answer in the terms of that faith which you profess. He knows the secret desires of our hearts and what we believe and what we do not believe. He knows better than we ourselves know, if there is a God. Does a man conjure God if he does not believe in God? God knows is not a statement of infidelity. With me it was a phrase, no more. You ask me to bear my inmost soul. I have not learned how to confess. You ask me to lay bare my past, 
to prove my identity. For conscience' sake you ask that, and I, for conscience' sake, say, I will not, Monsieur. You, when you enter your priestly life, put all your past behind you. It is dead forever, all its deeds and thoughts and desires, all its errors, sins. I have entered on a life here which is to me as much a new life as your priesthood is to you. Shall I not have the right to say, that may not be disinterred? Have I not the right to say, hands off? For the past I am responsible, and for the past I will speak from the past, but for the deeds of the present I will speak only from the present. I am not a Frenchman. I did not steal the little cross from the church door here, nor the golden chalices in Quebec, nor did I seek to injure the governor's residence. I have not been in Quebec for three years. He ceased speaking and fixed his eyes on the abbey, who now met his look fairly. In the way of justice there is nothing hidden that shall not be revealed, nor secret that shall not be made known, answered the abbey. Prove that you were not in Quebec on the day the robbery was committed. There was silence. The abbey's pertinacity was too difficult. The seigneur saw the grim look in Charlie's face and touched the abbey on the arm. Let us walk a little outside. Come, curé, he added. It is right that Monsieur should have a few minutes alone. It is a serious charge against him, and reflection will be good for us all. He motioned to constables from the room. The abbey passed through the door into the open air, and the curé and the seigneur went arm in arm together, talking earnestly. The curé turned in the doorway. Courage, Monsieur, he said to Charlie, and bowed himself out. Joe Portugais followed. One officer took his place at the front door, and the other at the back door, outside. The abbey, by himself, took to walking backward and forward under the trees, buried in gloomy reflection. Joe Portugais caught his sleeve. "'Come with me for a moment, monsieur,' he said. "'It is important.' The abbey followed him. End of chapter 31 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's audiobooks dot com